0: Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. Joining me today... We're making him start even though Jonathan isn't here yet. It's Elijah Howard. Elijah, how's it no, going? Oh no, no, not Jonathan. <laughs> uh, I'm doing
1: I'm doing excellent. Thank you very much. Uh,
0: well, thank you for being here, Elijah. Uh, glad to have someone of Elijah's expertise here to talk about Dungeon Dragons Honor Monk Thieves, which is uh inspired by the uh the uh, well-known tabletop game which uh started in the 70s. Right, Elijah? Um, yes and uh it's inspired some other you know uh, uh some other uh, you know adaptations in some certain forms and other points in time but this is the first time someone's tried to give it this uh big screen treatment in a while it stars uh chris pine as uh Edgin Darvis, who, who you know set set in this uh, prior this uh, f- f- uh, long long ago world of Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, Edgin is a was a uh, was a member of the Harpers, who is this uh, I guess order of uh, this order that you know works amongst these red wizards. He tried to steal from them. Uh, they killed his wife. He you know ends up traveling uh, to raise their daughter on his own, and they he for, he forms a kind of a, a makeshift family with uh, Michelle Rodriguez, Olga, a barbarian, uh, his daughter Kira an amateur sorcerer named Simon played by Justice Smith um, a, a kind of a, another guy named uh, Forge played by Hugh Grant who has a mysterious acquaintance named Sophina. and uh, on one of their jobs where they're trying to steal uh, a tablet of on one of their jobs and they're trying to steal a tablet of reawakening uh, Olga and Ejun are captured and they wanted to get that tablet of reawakening to uh, rescue uh, Ejun's wife or bring her back from the dead they're captured they're put in prison for two years uh, the forge makes off with Kira decides to raise her as own has his own as he uh, as he uh, t- takes over another little town and a castle, and uh, they find out that hey this might have been a little more sinister the way they got captured he was in bed with Sophina and then uh, Ejun has to put together a crew again to uh, go and rescue Kira and uh, complete a bunch of other tasks to make that happen. Uh, elijah i'm i'm as i noted earlier uh you're kind of my person of expertise on this we come at this from uh two very very different points of view i honestly uh, before a week ago i did not know anything about dungeons and dragons other than the fact it was a a tabletop game uh there's a dungeon master that kind of runs things there's a die with a lot of different sides involved and that's about all and uh and and so i i'm kind of curious can you uh Briefly explain your D&D bona fides to us. so People have a little context from the perspective of what you're coming at this.
1: Yeah, um, I've been playing Dungeons & Dragons for probably about, God, I'm almost 28, uh, probably about 15 years. Wow. I got my first D&D set uh, at a thrift store, actually, by complete chance. It was obviously something that I had been, you know, aware of as a nerd. It's kind of omnipresent in 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 nerddom but uh yeah when i was when i was but a young man i uh i was at a a thrift store and i found a uh almost complete uh dungeons and dragons uh or sorry advanced dungeons and dragons second edition box set um and i bought that tried to uh play it with my friends uh, um which uh When you're all young teenagers, there's, you know, you'll varying degrees of success with, you know, trying to like herd cats. Um, Not not
0: necessarily always as like well organized as it's depicted in season one of Stranger Things.
1: Right. No. Yeah, that's a that that right there is the fantasy is uh, everybody showing up and being invested in the game. But you you had some
0: familiarity with it through high school and played and played as much as you could. But um, when you got to college, did you find like a more regular crew or something like that? Yeah. I mean, I played
1: basically from the time when I got that first, uh, second edition box set till now I've for a long while, it had been sort of on and off just, you know, whenever I could find a group of people, um, eventually, you know, I realized, uh, at that point, most people had moved on from second edition, which came out in the nineties. Mm. Um, most people had moved on to third edition and then 3.5. Um, so I kind of, uh, you know, I had to get with the times <laughs> and, uh, you know, kind of learn that system. And then there was some, there was some downtime. I mean, I, a couple of years, especially like kind of right towards the end, like after, right after college, right at the end, right after college, just, you know, kind of life takes over. You ended up, it was moved, you know, moved to a new city. You don't really know anybody. And then I think like a lot of people, the pandemic sort of mm. brought everything back into very strong form because uh these tools which had existed in the in the arsenal of Dungeons and Dragons for a long time were now suddenly extremely useful. The ability to have virtual tabletops I was gonna and say, it seems like
0: something that can kind of translate to Zoom pretty well.
1: Yeah, right. The ability to have voice over IP, you know, video conferencing where you can you can have the experience of sitting with a group of people, but just do it virtually. Uh, you know, these are tools that have that had existed for years and that people were using for Dungeons and Dragons for a long time, but just not, I guess most people didn't really know about or think about, you know, for me, most of the time through, you know, the, the college and that, you know, or leading up to college and college, really the, my main experience with D D was what's called adventurers league, which is basically, you know, going to game shops, you know, the local game stores or going to, in my case, for example, going to the museum of science and industry in Tampa mm-hmm. um, and just kind of dropping into games with people so i didn't have the experience for that for the most part in that time of having like a real table you know um with with a group of people that was constant and familiar but for the last you know three years now yeah it's been back in full swing and obviously has been hugely uh has come back in a big way in terms of just general pop culture so yes
0: so so next question then as someone who is then grown as close to the game and uh, built some sorts of communities within it as you have uh, when you think about like oh this is the kind of intellectual property that could be adapted into something and you hear they're making a movie and it has all these like uh these big-time actors in it uh was there were you like a little scared like oh like this seems like something that i I don't see any way in this could in which this could work did you envision some version of the movie you wanted to see and if so is that what you got or did it just surprise you in some other way cuz I know you like this movie but I don't really know like what you were hoping to get out of it. I would
1: say most people who have played D&D for any any significant amount of time yeah are pretty much universally familiar with the previous attempts to make Dungeons and Dragons movies. Okay. uh which were abject failure. <laughs> and that's not to say like look I've watched the I've watched all three of the original D&D movies that they attempted to make. The second and third are just terrible. The mm. first one is terrible, but like at least it's so ridiculous in some parts that you can still kind of have fun watching it if you like, you know, watch it with a group of friends and just don't really care. Mm. Um, so I think for me, you know, coming in with the experience of those previous three movies, the first I think the first one was in two thousand, and then the the other two were sort of in sporadically in the, the few years following that one. I think for me, right, and I think for a lot of other D&D fans, the first, you know, order of business was let's just have something that's not that. <laughs> that's not the horrible uh 2000 Dungeons right. and Dragons movie.
0: Um in whatever form you get it as long as it's not trash.
1: Right. I think we were we were what I think what I was hoping for and what a lot of people were hoping for was um was just, you know, was just some level of quality and and also um i think the main thing that people wanted was for it to be clear that the people making the film had um an actual connection to the material Hmm. and and weren't you know i think the fear was that the pendulum could swing so far in the other direction right like the early 2000s movies were just You know, it was an attempt to cash in on an IP. There is some weird production history. I think the director of the first Dungeons & Dragons movie was 19 when he directed the movie, Um, which, you know, is not to say that, you know, Dungeons, you can't be a young person and direct a movie, but it was, (laughs) it shows. It's extremely unprofessional. It was... It was very outsized for what it was likely supposed to be, and it was just you know messy. And I think the concern was that the pendulum might swing too far in the other direction, right? That that a, a an IP driven movie in today's day and age with a huge budget uh, and stars in it might be instead overly clinical,
0: and stale. And-
1: yeah, just uh, you know, basically a a greatest hits of little inside jokes to make the nerds happy hmm. and, and really nothing else. And I think that's what the two kind of fears were, you know, about about this movie and what it could have ended up being.
0: So what's the what's the biggest thing you think it got right then?
1: <sighs> I think the biggest thing it got right, and this is something I'll I'll probably say a few times. I'll preface this by saying, I'll say this a few times probably in this podcast, is that I think the most successful part of this movie is that it doesn't get bogged down in being a Dungeons & Dragons movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, In particular, it doesn't get bogged down in being a Dungeons & Dragons, the tabletop RPG Mm -hmm. movie. There are plenty of little references that I'm sure we can talk about to the mechanics of the game. And some of the, you know, nitty gritty, the specific details about the way things work in game. But what I think the, what it gets particularly right is the vibe of Dungeons and Dragons and not just, you know, from the the, the comedy necessarily, but the, you know, the sincerity, the way that everything is executed in the movie feels extremely honest to what Dungeons and Dragons is at its core, which is kind of just this uh a springboard for nerdiness, for fantasy nerdiness. Um and that there's a kind of you know freeing quality that comes along with that. And I think the movie gets that very, very right.
0: Yeah, I should have mentioned to start the movie is directed by uh, John Francis Daly and uh, Jonathan Goldstein who, you know, have been doing things in uh, on fi- been doing things in their capacities as filmmakers for, you know, 12 years now or so. They they wrote Horrible Bosses and Coddy with the Chance of Meatballs 2 and directed Vacation and the 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 great 2018 film Game Night. And uh and, and here that they, they they wrote this movie, they they wrote this movie along with uh Michael Gilio, and they also uh, I should also say they uh they 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 wrote Spider Man Homecoming, I believe. So these guys have their their bonafides and like other things that are you know uh, IP adjacent, and I. So I think, you know, when I I saw that, like, there was, like, this really good reception the movie was getting, I didn't come, I didn't have any expectations. I was like, hey, Elijah, you do D&D, like, why don't you do this podcast? But I wasn't, for first I felt bad, I was like, oh, we haven't found a lot on the calendar yet that Elijah can do the podcast on. Like, this movie might suck, but, like, I'm making him, he's agreeing to do it, so that's nice of him. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, it might be good, but me knowing nothing about Dungeons & Dragons, I still had no idea what to expect, so I'm a little worried, like... I don't think, and I was like, am I going to get it? But at the same time, like, if you're going to make a movie like this, you can't just make it for the game players. You know, like, it's got to, it, it just, it just, it's not a successful, it's not going to, it's not worth putting the money into a movie like this if that's the only person it's going to appeal to. So I knew they had to have found some broader appeal. But at the same time, you're kind of worried when you go into a movie like this and you're so unfamiliar with such a very specific and popular source material. Like, am I going to get it? so i would say the thing i really did like most about it is kind of what you're saying it did really well and that like it doesn't get too bogged down in the lore and even in the places where it's like making reference to things where it's like it's kind of implied maybe i should know what a what a harper is or something like that even though like they don't talk about them for that long they don't dwell on it or do a bunch of exposition in a way where it's like oh shit i gotta remember a bunch of stuff you know it's like it's like so like it's it's, even though it is kind of long it's like still pretty economical and getting through moments like that and and then is getting to funny jokes so it's like you're not really ever like getting hung up on any one thing necessarily and the movie's not trying to throw too much at you story-wise such that you're left trying to put together a bunch of pieces It, it really keeps moving in a way that like i guess you said doesn't necessarily get bogged down in like simulating rpg gameplay but you know there's a vibe and you're just there hanging out with these people And, you know, I'm sure, so I was seeing it with, uh, uh, like I saw it with about six other people who do play and uh, I was sitting next to my friends, Ben and Maya. And throughout the movie, they kept like talking to each other and she would like lean over and say something to them. Like, okay. And And I was like, oh, that's nice. Like they're finding stuff in this movie. That's like, you know, something they're picking up on that they know from their experience playing the game. Great for them. But there was never a moment where like they were doing that. And I was like, well, shit, I feel lost now. So I think that just like, you know, Help my appreciation for it. I'm like, it's clear to me they're giving they're, they're they're putting enough stuff in here that the game players can get excited about things here and there, but they're doing it in such a way that you're nothing is lost on those who don't know what that is. And I and, and on top of just like, you know, genuinely finding this movie like so like pleasantly hilarious that like I was just like I was along for the ride and didn't have to worry about it, you know. Yeah, and
1: honestly, I mean. I don't know, you know, Ben and I, Mm I don't know necessarily your friends or what their game is like, but if they're in any way, like, you know, me and my table, right. I would probably venture to say that half of those moments that they were, you know, leaning over and giggling with each other, right. Is just at how similar something in the movie felt to probably an actual experience that they had more so necessarily than just like, Oh, did you catch that mechanic that they referenced? Because that was, what you know, my experience at the movie with my, you know, I went to go see it with two players from my table um, and some other friends who have never played before. But, um, you know, and most of the times when, you know, me and the other two who are our players, you know, would kind of get giddy about something. Most of it wasn't like some, there were some times where it was like, oh, that's a really cool mechanic that was referenced. But most of the time it was just like, holy shit, like this has actually happened at our table or in some variation right not an exact situation but just the way somebody says a line or a realization about an uh, you know a quote-unquote npc you know of somebody who's not one of the main characters like those kind of things i feel like that's what the movie got right is sort of the universal vibe of dnd and some of it is conscious that you know as a player you can get and i think some of it is just as a non-player you can still sort of pick up on it and be like that's
0: funny well so i was gonna ask then like i mean it seems like some of the stuff you might be inspired from from the source material might just be in those like interpersonal moments within the characters though i was gonna ask like what what, like are there any like action moments that feel particularly inspiring uh to someone that like plays the game a lot because i mean i i was i was impressed with some of the action in this movie um so, some parts more than others but like especially like uh you know i i guess i i guess i would say the the moment that first jumps out to me is uh is uh dork ex- escaping from the castle and you know changing into all of the different uh shapes and i mean I'm, i guess i'm assuming you know uh I'm, I'm assuming druids are like a decently prominent part of the game but also like you know the then the the, the pudgy dragon and just that entire sequence in the and i guess i, I can't remember they call it the underworld or some the under the underdark yes yeah the underdark or something that effect and there's like moments like that i'm wondering uh given how it goes when you when you are playing the game or like did you get any particular rush or were you impressed with any particular set pieces that seemed like they were a pretty good adaptation of uh kind of any any parts of any uh of of any games you've ever played
1: yeah i mean so like I've, I, it's actually interesting that you specifically mentioned Doric and the, you know, the scene of her infiltrating the castle mm-hmm. because the first character I ever played was a druid. And pretty much consistently, every, anytime I start like with a new group of people, I'll usually default to playing a druid because that's just kind of where I started and where I tend to go. But uh, so that was a, that was a funny, kind of a funny scene to me because you know that that was actually a moment where they sort of threw the rule book out a bit oh, okay uh, you know in the in the context of like the way the game mechanics works like you know pushing pushing up the nerdy glasses right um actually she wouldn't be able to transform that many times uh you know unless she was literally like the most powerful druid in the world uh but that's not you know to me i didn't care because that scene, as you noted, was so spectacular, especially to me, that was one of the first moments like I really like just was blown away. I mean, I, I was liking the movie up to that point, but still was blown away with when she, you know, launches herself out of the window and turns into, you know, the uh, it's like an eagle or a hawk or something, and you just get this like sweeping shot of Neverwinter, you know, and it's not particularly ingenious but it it feels very much like the kind of spectacle that i would want from a movie like this scale and grandiosity um but you know you're asking about moments that did feel accurate
0: not necessarily something unfair from the game but just like any any, whether it be that or not just something that like you know action-wise you felt like captured the spirit of the game
1: yeah, I mean there is a lot of uh, a lot of especially kind of later in the film a lot of improvisation and especially like synchronicity between characters in combat and that is something that every D&D table will certainly strive for, not always succeed at, but the kind of like the one of the ultimate goals typically of a D&D table is to like have fluidity in combat where like everybody's strengths are playing off of each other right um so that kind of flow in some of the later uh later fights in specific where there was kind of everybody together felt um felt very honest to the sort of the vibe of the game there was other things you know early on the fight in the kind of in the like alleyway with um with uh edgen and darv uh edgen and holga um when they're about to be executed you know it's a it's played as a joke but there is some honestness to it like the druid is not the druid sorry the uh the bard is kind of useless in combat (laughs) he's sort of you know he is restrained and he can't break out um which is you know, if the bard gets restrained, he's probably not going to have the strength to break out. So I felt that was pretty accurate that he spends most of the combat just sort of sitting there trying to hype Holga up.
0: It, it was funny. In that moment, I did have the thought like, oh, yeah, so what does he do anyway? And then like Dork essentially says exactly that like later in the movie. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah, I got to get yeah. out of that.
1: <laughs> it's a running joke that, uh yeah, that, that you know, and it's it's been interesting, too, because I've definitely... I've heard a lot of people who have come in to, and this is—I don't know, sound like gate, you know, like I'm gatekeeping here—but a lot of people have, who have recently discovered D and D, who have only played fifth edition. You know, the experience with bards in fifth edition is that they're magic users who are very talented and you know very skilled. Um, but in previous editions, bards were kind of a joke. Um, it was something like. You couldn't even you couldn't even start the game as a bard. You had to choose to become a bard later in the game. Um and <laughs> you know, sort of viewed as like a you only do this if you're really into the idea because you're not gonna be good. So that to me felt very accurate. Um there was I mean, in you know, beyond just like the writing, right? Like we've talked about uh, you know, John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein. I think the direction, even, in combat felt uh, very observant. There was several times I noticed where they would make the directorial choice to cut to a top-down view Hmm. of fight scenes, and, you know, I think this might be one of those things that maybe gets a little lost on people who have never played, but... For people who have what that looks like is a tabletop. It looks like a we would call it a battle map.
0: You're looking down which at is basically, the yeah. yeah.
1: You're looking down at the table, or in the case of, you know, in the last few years, a virtual tabletop, that's what you're seeing is a top-down view of the landscape all gridded up, you know, in the especially like in the last part uh in the in the labyrinth, uh, you know, or in in that alleyway fight scene where there is you know it there is kind of phantom grid markings on the scene when it goes to the top down view from the stones on the you know on the floor. Hmm. Um so you know in terms of in terms of the combat and the way it's executed I You know, I've seen a lot of people complain about stuff like, oh, the druid can't wild shape like that, or, you know, how many spell slots does such and such have, or why doesn't Edgen use spells, or, you know, what, what, you know, stuff like that. It's like, I don't particularly care about any of that because to me, the the vibe and the flow is what's being captured. And I think the movie very, very successfully excels at. Kind of showing you what that feels like.
0: Well, so I guess going along with that and like you know, um, depicting something like that from the tabletop to the screen. uh, Before I ask, because I do want to get to talking about some of these performances as well and how they brought these characters to life. I guess I just want to then ask you first, uh, because again, it, it worked fine for me, even if maybe. Uh, stuff like this could maybe just be considered a MacGuffin of sorts, but like, what did you think of the way they like actually like utilize some some of the specific items that I'm sure are fairly prominent in the game, whether it be that the teleportation staff or uh, or this other helmet that becomes like a very very big piece of this movie? That like, honestly, if you put a gun to my head, I'm not sure I could exactly explain what they were trying to do with it. But I didn't really care because the movie is charming anyway and fun.
1: Well, right, and that in and of itself is like a D and D joke, right? Oh, where there's okay. this this magical item that they need to go uh, capture in order to pull off this heist, and they get it, and they go through all these steps, and yep. then it's, complete, it's completely useless <laughs> okay. because they they you know break into this room and it's not you know not where they need to be anyways, right? Um, so that uh, that in and of itself, I thought was great, but um, no, and I mean, I'm I feel like this is gonna this is going to maybe upset you a bit, but those items, specifically the helmet of disjunction and the hither-thither staff, are not real D and D items. They were invented oh. for the movie, uh, and in fact, uh, Wizards of Wizards of the Coast, the company that now publishes Dungeons and Dragons, they released like stat blocks for those items in conjunction with the movie, so you could incorporate them into your game. But they're They were not previously existing items. Well, so then let me ask you because
0: I mean, if nothing else, it seems like those kind of things are like it seems like you're saying they're still within the spirit of the game, even if those aren't particular pieces from the game. But and I did mention and I should I did say that all the friends I saw it with, uh, they really liked the movie. Though a couple of them did note afterward, like they almost thought there could have been even more Easter eggs, and it seems like you thought there were plenty of them. But were there were there any moments where you did find yourself being like, I wish in this way this was tracking more with the game, or did you just think throughout they like struck the right balance?
1: I I think they struck the right balance. I mean, you want to talk about like items specifically, right? To me, the best, one of the best jokes or references to an item in the movie is not even spoken at directly at any point, which is, you know, probably, you know, in, in contrast to the helmet of disjunction and the hither, thither staff that were invented for the movie, uh, by contrast, one of the most popular, most famous D&D items uh, in existence is the bag of holding, which is basically just like a bandolier that is a you know a portal to an extra dimensional space that you can just sort of continually shove things into without worrying about you know weight or size. You know it's so much of a common trope now in fantasy that it appears everywhere. You know it's in Harry Potter. Hermione's got basically has a bag of holding in Harry Potter, right? Just a bag you can just sort of dump stuff in and mm-hmm. you'll always you know be able to go grab it. I thought the best one of the best i you know kind of like easter eggs or jokes was completely unspoken in the movie in regards to the bag of holding which is that simon the sorcerer clearly has a bag of holding but it's never mentioned and the joke is just whenever Edgin gets something he just tells like here hold on to this please <laughs> he just has Simon take it and shove it somewhere and we never really see that referenced but that Mm. directly but to me that felt like a very obvious uh you know note that it's like oh the bag that Simon has around his you know around his chest is a bag of holding and (laughs) anytime anytime the party Gets something that they that nobody wants to directly hold on to they just <laughs> sort of toss it to simon who throws it in his bag
0: yeah and and i and i, and I, now I, I think i am now recalling a couple of those moments and i just kind of took him in stride and just kind of assumed oh yeah they probably do have stuff like that in that world uh and i just kind of accepted i, I just took it at face value and i I kept it moving. I guess. I guess the next thing I want to I want to talk about a little bit is just is is the characters themselves that they developed for this movie because you know and hearing you talk about it, reading your letterbox review, and seeing how this captured the spirit and kind of just like what it's like to feel like when you're playing the game. And uh, again, I I I I I, a few like like a week before I actually saw it, like I did have a, a, a fairly long chat with my friend Ben about like you know what it what it's like to. Uh, play the game and he he is like his game's uh, dungeon master. and he's like, look, like, you know, i'm I'm you're there to like try and make sure that like everyone has a great time. Is, is, is kind of the, the the way he put it and it is, is the way he put it in its basis terms. And everyone is there and're they're, they're all playing and you're all doing your own things throughout the game. And I guess just the, the joy of it is that forming that community and just like seeing what what it brings out with those people in the moment and how you can you know uh, make people laugh or have a fun time or whatnot is kind of my understanding of it. So then if you're adapting it for the screen, you i mean you know maybe you're seeing it with friends but like kind of in places those friends you are playing the game with are these people you're watching on the screen and i think so i think a goal of the movie should be to like you know just allow allow even more so than maybe in other kinds of movies when you're adapting this kind of game is to like you know just make you have a fun time with its characters and that might not necessarily be the goal the, the number one goal of a lot of movies but it seems like it might be the most important thing for this movie to accomplish above uh, for uh, before anything else so i am curious like how did you ultimately feel like they, they did in going about like just simply character development, which is a broad thing, but like I think in certain ways it's like integral to this movie in a way that like maybe other types of and other genres, maybe not as much?
1: Yeah, you know, I mentioned this earlier, and I will reiterate now, right? Like I don't know about other people, and I think maybe there were some people who were hoping or expecting the movie to be this, but for mm-hmm. me, and I think a lot of other D&D fans there was not in there was never an expectation that this movie was going to be an adaptation of dungeons and dragons the tabletop rpg mm-hmm. it was it was always i think going to be dungeons and dragons the ip
0: mm.
1: and with any kind of reference to the tabletop itself being a, being just that being a reference nobody was expecting somebody to come on screen and roll a you know a, a D20 and I think again one of the successes, the most successful part of this movie maybe is capturing the vibe, right And I think the movie threads that needle perfectly with characters where each character very much feels like an individual voice where they're they have a, a set of traits and a backstory that drives them, but they are slightly imperfect. They're clearly, you know, in, in my opinion, at least they feel like characters written by people playing dungeons and dragons, mm. um, which is to say that they are, there's a lot of heart and a lot of loving, you know, g- g- went into their creation, but they are in some way sort of flawed. And the movie plays on that. I think really successfully with every single one of the characters, mm. You know, I think Chris Pine is. I I mean, I think after this movie, he's the undisputed Chris of all time. Uh,
0: <laughs> Elijah has deemed a winner in the Chris force. It's official.
1: I I think so. I I think it's Chris Pine. Maybe come from behind win, but in my opinion, nevertheless, a. Uh,
0: the way I've always thought about the it's Chris success. Wars is that like, you know, they all have their own like tentpole franchises and whatnot that they've, you know, been fairly successful uh, w- with respect to each of them. But like, I always saw like, all right, cr- you know, Chris Evans did like a really like dope movie outside of his franchise in uh, Snowpiercer and Chris Pine kind of did the same thing in Hell or High Water. And uh, let's see, like, let's see who does something interesting next outside of like the franchise they're known best for. And I feel like, you know, uh, Chris Evans kind of uh, fell on his face a little bit with that, with uh, the gray man. <laughs> And, you no, know, Chris Pine is pulled ahead now because of this movie. That's 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 right. That's how I'd handicap it, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that assessment. But <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, and it's funny, right? Because Chris, Chris Pine's playing the main character of the movie, who in a way, you know, he's the driving force, but he's also kind of, he's the most like straightforward. It's not to say that he's like the least interesting. He might but be, he's... but
0: the fact is he needs to be, he just needs to be there to be charming. And he does that very well right he's the face and his
1: character is aware of that and Mm -hmm. that's the the kind of the joke right is is this notion that like he's aware that he is the glue Mm -hmm. that's kind of holding things together but he has his own personal motivations and I'm, i'm just like talking through it like and again it's it's it is surprisingly complex the way his relationship works and the way it plays out on screen.
0: Yeah. And I'd say uh, and... you made the comment at well, least interesting. And in some ways I think you could actually maybe possibly say that about Michelle Rodriguez as Olga, but though I I really buy her chemistry with Chris Pine and that they've created that family. Uh, and like, I, I do think I, I mean, we'll, we'll get to the scene where we learn something about her past, which is just I will, yeah most, I was gonna t- what, what may be my favorite scene so far in any uh, 2023 movie. But like just the more important thing with respect to her is that like you buy this family unit they created. And her, her performance is effective enough with that that it just gets you invested in in, in the story and in a way that like you know yeah the, the best thing you get out of this movie is the laughs but like that's the heart of the movie and you, you and it, it, I think it, I think it works
1: totally and I think for the rest of the characters they all work in terms of being both a representation of what feels to be like a true D and D character while being. I think successful characters in their own right. And I don't I I know this happens every time I come on here I start comparing movies. But I feel oh, like yes. it's it's hard to not kind of look at this movie in the light of something like Guardians of the Galaxy which clearly had some influences I think here at least in terms of how it was executed. But to me a problem that I've kind of always had with with Guardians is that every character is sort of just One, you know, is sort of just one personality trait taken to an extreme, and I think what this movie succeeds in is that all the characters, with the exception of uh, Reggie John Page's character, because but that there's a joke inherent in there. I feel like to me, every character is is actually more than just one trait, and is you know has a lot of depth, and is and throughout the runtime gets a lot of chances to kind of present different personality traits and yeah. different angles
0: it's funny you mention that because I, I i mean i unabashedly love both guardians movies i I think like i if, if i think this oh, is to, the biggest... be, to
1: be clear i like the guardians yeah I, i'm it, not it, saying it, they're bad
0: if, if there's if there's one big weakness in either of them for me it's like the villain in the first one i just don't think lee pace's ronin's all that interesting um even if i like i like lee pace in general but i would say you know with respect to those characters probably the one that like they do the best of like shading and giving multiple sides to is rocket and uh, as, as far as just like him being like the smart ass, but also having a pretty tortured past that they don't, that, that, they, that they do spend a decent enough time on that. You really kind of get a feel for him. And it's funny because like, what. Well, Actually, I was about to say he was like the least human of those. But one of those characters is a tree. So, uh, but, <laughs> but 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 like but like what one criticism or not even a criticism, but like one criticism I did hear when I listened to a podcast about Dungeons and Dragons was like, hey, all these are very human characters, and like it, you know, given the scope of this world, like maybe one of these could have just like looked like something a little more ridiculous beyond whatever the, the um, uh, dork turns into. Was that something that bothered you at all? Did you want to see that, or were you like, were you you were no. fine with what you got?
1: uh again that's i in a, i'm not trying to be a gatekeeper or whatever here but that mm-hmm. feels like an outside crit- i mean it was something that okay. came even from within the dnd community it was a lot of people complaining because doric is i mean besides the fact that she turns into other creatures mm-hmm. she is a tiefling which is not a human a tiefling is uh, a, okay it's like a demon spawn um not a demon spawn sorry though they'll get me for that one a devil spawn um oh. the, is a a a, a half devil child, essentially. Um, yeah. Well, the, the person—the
0: person I heard say that on the podcast even conceded, like, I know this is a little weird. It's like I'm accusing them of whitewashing a race that doesn't exist. But like, <laughs> you know, they kind of—they—they they, they, they were just wondering if there should have been like a little more diversity in what these—not—not uh, not like racial diversity, but just like, you know, like you have other non-human options here. But I—that I, your point is well right. taken about the tiefling, you know.
1: Right. Well, and it's not—it's not even just that she's a tiefling, because because there were people in within the community who complained that she was not presented in the way that in the fifth edition of dungeons in the most recent edition of dungeons and dragons tieflings for the most part have been presented as you know red or purple skinned with cloven hooves and you know big yellow eyes and fangs and whatnot when the reality is is that for most of the lifespan of dungeons and dragons tieflings have been described more as what Doric appears like which is human with some devilish traits Hmm. and uh and so for me that was you know I was fine with the way that they presented her and I was fine with the fact that the party didn't have any beast races in it because, again, not to sound like too much of a nerd, but in the written, in the way that the story, the way that the setting is written, uh, the quote unquote, the beast races, as they're called, you know, they're not basically the non-human races
0: mm-hmm.
1: are not that common. Okay, interesting. They're, they're, they're around. And we see them in the movie, but they're not, uh, you know, I think people have this uh, fantasy, or this illusion of Dungeons and Dragons as this uber colorful world where there's, you know, all kinds of, you know, weird, weird leopard people and dragon people Then you know, there's millions of them wandering around when in reality, in the, in the way that the setting is written is it's more like, you know, one out of every 50 or 100 people is not human
0: Hmm. you want to know what the most pleasant surprise for me was in the cast uh was was justice Smith as simon because because like honestly like i probably like talked a little shit about him on the podcast before he's not someone i typically love in movies i don't know why i don't criticize actors that often i'm usually more critical of like the material they're given but like I just like think he's miscast in certain things I've seen him in. It's maybe not even his fault. They made him do some really, really fucking weird accent in The Voyeurs. It was very bizarre. Uh, in In Detective Pikachu, a movie which I think I might have liked more than most, I walked away from that movie being like, why didn't they just give Catherine Newton the lead role? She like almost acts him off the screen. Like he just doesn't often do much for me. And for some reason, I laughed like every time he talked. In this movie, like he like leaned into this, like, kind of like, uh bumbling, nerdy type of character in a way that I just don't know if I'd ever seen him like really mesh with a character before. And I just thought like, I just got a huge kick out of this, like, uh this person that like you kind of walk into a movie and you just like expect like a fantasy movie and you expect everyone to have like full control of all the fantasy type things they're doing. And it was just really fascinating to see him just like, kind of like figure shit out on the fly. I I, I got a huge kick out of him. Uh, what what did you think of like what he was able to do, especially in light of what you knew about like what maybe sorcerers are supposed to be in this world.
1: I thought it was a brilliant uh, choice for them to make him a, a you know, a, a uh, it's called a wild magic sorcerer, mm-hmm. which is, it's a class in the game. Okay. Um, and it's a class that requires some degree, a pretty strong degree of role play. It's not really a class you can sort of set and forget, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just how some people prefer to play the game and that's fine. Some people want to just play. I am man with sword who hits things with sword (laughs) and just, they want to have fun that way. And that's totally fine. But wild magic has this inherent idea of like, you don't have control over what you're doing for whatever reason maybe it's because you have a you know some kind of fae spirit in your in your ancestry that's you know giving you this uncontrolled font of magic or whatever but i thought the way that they portrayed it was excellent which is that he's just kind of a kid with magical powers who doesn't quite know how to use them i think that's a really smart way to portray that and it's a kind of smart way to have a character whose arc is about self-actualization and kind of coming to terms with who you are and what your place is in the world Mm -hmm. and you know this is it's one of they i think they discuss it briefly in the movie but it's it is kind of it is kind of glossed over a bit which is funny but they uh they i think straight up say that his great great grandfather is this guy elminster omar who in the uh lore of D&D is probably like the most famous wizard of all time. He is uh you know a direct uh kind of descendant in lore from like Dan he was clearly inspired by like Gandalf and Merlin and whatnot in fiction but he's been around since you know that character has been around since the I'm pretty sure since the 70s maybe since the 80s, but it's a very old and very important character. And I, I think it just works really well because if, if you don't know that when you're watching the movie, it still feels relevant. You still understand like, oh, this is, he's got an important ancestor who he's kind of living in the shadow of. Mm. But it works on that double level if you do know the lore and you do know who Elminster is supposed to be, okay. that like, you know... It's like, oh shit! He's literally like descended from a god, basically. Yeah. Well, and, even if you
0: don't get, even if you don't know the lore, like they still get a couple of good laughs in those sequences too. Uh, yeah, top of that. for and sure. You don't have to know that stuff to even laugh at those moments. So, and that's what I, and that you
1: know, and that even on top of that, I love that because there's, you know, there's so much. I feel like of a, it's a universal. I feel like understanding it kind of goes beyond D and D, of the, you know, grim loner character archetype who's like oh i'm living in the shadow of my ancestors and i have to i've got some ghost on my back that i've got to excise basically right like this is this is a very common trope for characters and usually it's played seriously Hmm. so to see it in this movie played for very like very sincere very heartwarming laughs and eventually a very heartwarming resolution right like I thought that was just really smart. It felt very uh, very different from what we've seen at least recently.
0: Yeah, I, I was just, like I said, I was I was a little worried coming in because I've, I've never quite gelled with him as an actor. And I, I really, really did enjoy what they did with his character. Now, I want to ask you about a couple of the characters outside of this main crew uh, before we kind of work our way back to any other odds and ends about the movie that we wanted to discuss. Uh, I'm curious, as someone, again, that is just, uh, you know, pretty ignorant of most things about the game, how do, like, when you're just playing with other people that pick whatever characters they want, how do villains factor into Dra- Dungeons and Dragons gameplay? It, it, if at all, if they even do in a way prominently like they do in this movie. And uh, man, what'd you think about Hugh Grant? Cause he seemed like he was having a fun time.
1: Uh, he He's great. I mean, he is basically just playing the same character he played in Paddington.
0: <laughs> I was going to um, say he was doing his Paddington
1: two thing. Yeah. Which is fine, because um, it worked really well in that movie, and so I'm I'm uh, I'm glad they just sort of go go back to it. And you know, I think again to sort of peek behind the curtain, I think some people looked at Hugh Grant's character in this movie as being like if there was kind of like a framework, right? A frame story, right? Hugh Grant is the character is the guy who showed up for a couple of sessions. And then, for whatever reason, decided he didn't want to play anymore. So the, the dungeon master just turned him into the villain, kind of. thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I buy into that. I think he's he, you know, does a fantastic Hugh Grant does a fantastic job playing a character he's clearly very familiar with. Um, but as far as you know, in the way that D and D campaigns work. You know when you're selecting a character and you know thinking about kind of the end game and the villain because to some degree there always is a villain in D and D. You know, you're, they're sometimes a literal physical person, sometimes it's a, an idea, an institution, a kingdom, whatever. But um you know, most of the time when you're playing D and D, you have some idea of who the villain's going to be beforehand. Either because you're playing an adventure module written by Wizards of the Coast, where it's right there on the cover. Maybe you're playing, you know, Tyranny of Dragons. Okay, well, you know, the villain is going to be the evil goddess of dragons. Mm -hmm. She's right there on the front cover. Or you know, if you're,
0: does anyone (laughs) play as the villain? No. So most, yeah.
1: Right. So so the 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 uh, you can play as characters that are evil. Oh, okay. but i will tell you that any dna any dm right who's ever had any experience with this will likely say the same thing which is you're allowed to play an evil character you're not allowed to play a dickhead which is basically to say you're you still have to have a reason to be playing right If you're playing somebody who's evil, you can't be the villain of the campaign. You can't do some things so antagonistic that the party would have a reason to want to kill you because then you wouldn't be playing. You would just (laughs) you would be the villain. So most DMs will allow people to play evil characters, but you have to play still a character that is pragmatic. Okay. You, you can't play the Joker. You can't play a character who's just going to go in and just cause mayhem. You can play a character who has goals that maybe temporarily align with the party, but maybe don't in the long run. You so it's, I guess it's,
0: it's almost in some ways it's a different type of challenge for the screenwriters to, you know develop a character like forge and uh and in the context of everything else going on around him and you know i mean again uh not that there's like a ton of uh shades of gray to this guy but at the same time like they they made him entertaining and the performance you know serves its purpose well enough that i think you can just like you know laugh and have a fun time and not think that like you know this feels out of place in this world
1: for sure for sure yeah i would agree i think um he, he There's there. To me, there feels like a clear delineation between him or between all of the, you know, quote unquote NPC characters, the non, uh, the the non-player characters, the the people who are not the main characters of the movie, and you know the, the it feels like to me there's kind of a difference in characterization.
0: The, yeah, the, these red wizards are just kind of there and he's, you know, something, yeah, something else.
1: Yeah, and, and, you know, it goes to Sofina. It also goes to the character of Zenk, who I really like. Um, but there is a clear distinction, right, the movie even makes you aware of, which is that these characters are more, a little more silly, a little more one-note because of what they represent, which is just they are part of the party's journey. They're just part of the quest, right? You know, it's... Again, I keep talking about Zenk, right? That it they quite literally portray it with when Zenk leaves, once his once his job has been accomplished for the party, he just leaves and he literally like walks away in a straight line. And there's a joke. It's like, is he gonna oh is he gonna walk around this rock? And he just like walks straight over it. Because that's the joke, is that once a character has served their purpose in D D they just sort of leave.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. So like, I think a lot of people, you know, he was Reggie John Page, who was fairly prominently featured in the marketing for the movie. And I think going in, like, I don't know if you already knew what what kind of like uh, character he was supposed to be, or because like, I just kind of expected him to be in more of the movie. So a lot of people were kind of surprised. But at the same time, like, even me not knowing about it, I was kind of like, oh, well, that kind of just makes sense for a video game. Like, I'm sure there are people that come in and leave and serve their purpose i at least gathered that much from like consuming the content i did when the last of us was on i like that sometimes like you know characters might be a big part of a part of a game and they go away so i just kind of accepted that but at the same time that was another one of the examples i was talking about where i was like i'm sure there's something to this that you're getting more out of like watching this guy do his weird deadpan thing if you like know about like what if you know what a paladin is and uh and i'm curious like you know what? What is your expectation when you hear like a a paladin is going to be depicted on screen, and how did you think he captured that? Because like you know, I, I did you watch Bridgerton? That's when most people first met him.
1: I've seen like a couple episodes of Bridgerton, not not my thing.
0: Yeah, that's fine. But he became a big deal for the first season of that. And he plays a fairly stoic character. And like, I actually am like a big fan of him because when he hosted SNL, I thought he was like really, really funny. And I was like, oh, okay. Like this guy can do other stuff. But then he's back in this movie and he's like doing a very stoic thing, but it's like utilized in a very different way and I, I just thought it was like hilarious that he I mean it, you know you're drawing the uh, comparisons to Guardians there's, there's actually there are different characters on the, for the most part but there's something to it with like him and Drax both taking things like incredibly literally and just like not picking on nuances of language but you know they it, it go about getting the laughs in a very in, in a different way and, I, and so I did in, in the ways they comment on it and stuff like that and I, I just thought he was like hilarious and it's really impressive to be able to generate that many laughs just by your reaction and facial expressions in, in response to what other characters are saying so, what did? How did you think that captured uh, what you like hope to see when you hear? All oh, right, they're going to have a whole uh, di- digression in this movie to uh, go meet a paladin who's going to help him with a the thing.
1: There is definitely an expectation from from most people that a paladin is a you know lawful good, super self serious kind of character, mm-hmm. which is kind of tracks with how they are presented in the lore of the game. Uh, you know, at face value, right? The main one of the main distinctions in Dungeons and Dragons, not to get too nitty gritty, um, as far as magic is concerned, is essentially where does a magic user draw their power from? Hmm. Wizards learn their magic, sorcerers inherit it, warlocks buy it, clerics pray for it, paladins basically have to just really believe in it, super hard. <laughs> that's that's the thing. Is paladins swear oaths. And whatever your oath is, is where you draw your power from. Mm-hmm. So there is kind of an expectation that paladins are gonna be self-righteous dickheads mm-hmm. in a way. And that's sort of the the joke. Is and I think the, the movie plays that really well. It shows the distinction between the player characters, the main characters who have this more fleshed out sense of of uh you know of agency and you know goals and and you know what they're kind of hoping to do in and the way they're going to go about doing it versus a character who exists as an insert into the world from the perspective of like a dungeon master so it it makes sense that they kind of play off this idea that like you know he's somebody who talks in riddles and has <laughs> like they joke about how some of the stuff he says doesn't make any sense and it really doesn't mm-hmm. like if you listen to some of his lines he's just <laughs> talking out of his ass and that's yeah. the that's the joke right it's like The DM has to be coming up with this stuff on the fly to, you know, to sound wise and sound self-important. And it Mm. ends up just being nonsense. Mm. So I thought that, you know, I thought Roger Jean Page did a fantastic job kind of not going, not being too much of a caricature with it. There actually is some like, like when he... You know, he has that little kind of knowing moment with Edgen after they get out of the situation where, you know, Edgen thanks him for saving him. And then, uh, you know, Zenk says, well, I know you would do the same. And Edgen's kind of like, eh. and he <laughs> sort of thinks about it. But then you see Zenk sort of off, you know, out of the view of everybody. He smiles because, you know, that was an actual moment of character development that felt really good. Like, yeah
0: no no i guess again, yeah, like he was great it's it's cool they got a, an actor that big to like you know, that could kill it in a small part to just show up to do something like that and then like you know again like i'm sure i'm sure the script for this read pretty funny but it's cool that like you know like on on paper i think a lot of people might have been cynical when they just saw like oh they're making a dungeons and dragons movie and you know people like to be cynical these days about like just everything being some branch of intellectual property and uh kudos to any actor that like is willing to like sign up for a smaller role in this just because they saw that it was going to be a funny movie and he's a he's an actor that's become a big deal in the last couple of years and you know I'm sure he could have like you know gone and done like you know something of the ilk of the gray man in a bigger role than the one he had in that one and uh you know and then and, and just kept doing stuff like that but he's like oh no this is a funny movie i'm gonna go take this funny part you know so props to roger john page let me ask you uh just in isolation because I, I just want to make sure we don't forget to talk about it and i and, and i and, and i think i already i think i might have already said uh, um a, di- a different scene might have been like the my favorite scene in movies all year one of the, the hardest i'd laugh but then that, that i wasn't even thinking about in that moment uh the graveyard scene which uh, was which might actually be the hardest I've laughed in the movies all year, and I'm wondering: is there even any video game, or not video game? Is there any, uh, is there any uh, tabletop game analog for that? Because that almost felt to me like something that was just like a cool idea that the movie makers had, you know?
1: That is a hundred percent one of the moments that is absolutely something that has happened in probably most people's games. Oh, and, and um, how
0: how 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 does that even come about? Like, can you actually like? Is there actually like a, a moment in the game where it's like, oh, like? You're, you know, you have to ask like questions of this, like NPC or something like that, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, Speak with the Dead is a spell in the oh, game. Oh, okay. Um, it's uh, not necessarily a common spell. I think most mm-hmm. people take it if they, they, if they know that there's a chance that they might use it. I think, which mm-hmm. is kind of, you know, the way anybody picks any spells in the game or any game in general, you want to optimize. But let's say, you know, you know, you're playing a game where, you know, it's a kind of, maybe a gothic sort of game where you know you're going to be in a graveyard or you know you might come across a charnel of some sort or something where you can where you might be able to use the spell it is something that people definitely use and it it functions exactly that way you revive a corpse you ask it five questions it has to answer the questions after you Mm, ask it the five questions it dies
0: so, so so I mean I, I guess you know they, they they generated a ton of laughs out of this moment just for the way they wrote and edited that scene uh so I think like I think the pro- filmmakers do get some I guess they should get some props for that I suppose for like finding a way to like put a spin on that on on that on that that aspect of the game that like really really like you know just cracked me up I guess at yeah least. one
1: of one of the biggest kind of jokes of d d is the idea of the monkey's paw basically that, You know, a good dungeon master is not out to get his players. But a good dungeon master will also not let his players just get away with anything, mm. right? So that felt very much like a reference to that where it's like they're not asking the right questions, they accidentally ask a question that they didn't mean to ask kind of thing. And it leads to this this comical string of them having to reuse the spell over and over and over again to get the answers that they need. That that very much felt like an, a, an, explan- or an example of that idea brought to life there's Mm. a there's a, a sort of famous the most probably the most famous example of this concept is there is a um an a very very it's probably the most powerful spell in all of dungeons dragons yada yada called wish it's a spell you can't as a wizard or, you know, you can't learn it until you're at the max level. It can sometimes be found as like an as an item, you know, a scroll of wish or a coin of wish or something like that. Um, And essentially what it does is it just grant it grants you a wish hmm. and you have to word it. You know, as the, the idea is the spell is incredibly open ended and open to the DM's discretion to kind of interpret how... What you're saying is actually going to play out when the wish is complete. So the big joke that constantly comes to pass is like low level parties that find, for example, a ring of wish where they just put it on and forget about it. And then a year of real time, like real life time later, the person wearing the ring of wish Says offhandedly, you know, you know what I really wish right now? We had a giant plate of cookies Hmm. and the DM alarm bells are going off in your head. like He just said it. (laughs) And you then, you know, as a DM, you get to make that joke like, aha, you forgot that you had the ring of wish. And now here's a plate of cookies. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh so that scene felt very much like that where it, you know you can read it from a D perspective of this is this feels very much like a moment of the dm just sort of screwing around with players that's well, really like, cool though
0: because i mean it can it can play like that in a way that the game players can appreciate it but like i mean it works just incredibly well to someone that knows none for the wiser you know exactly so I, yeah. I i really appreciated that all right we have to we have to talk about olga's ex-husband uh, so the, 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 there's a moment in this movie where, you know, again, it's one, it's one of those things where it's like you wouldn't have known any different if the scene wasn't there. But they at some point they decide, all right, we got to stop by Olga's ex-husband because like maybe he might have some information about a thing. I, I honestly don't remember. I think it had something to do with getting to the graveyard and knowing that her ancestors might know this thing. Honestly, all, none of that's really that important because we walk in and we see that her ex-husband. Her being like a you know big barbarian, her husband I guess her ex husband is a, is I guess what they call it a halfling, right, Elijah, and yes. uh, who is just you know a, a, a little person in this world or an elf type figure or something, correct? Uh, and
1: yeah, halflings. It's interesting. Halflings are kind of ha- halfling is what the uh, uh, original publishers TSR had to legally change the name of a hobbit to because they oh. could they couldn't call them hobbits legally in the, in the game, so they changed <laughs> it to halfling. But yes, halfling are little uh, magical folk that are actually the smallest race in D anD D, uh, and smallest, because like normal race,
0: and, yes, and because they go to him for like what is kind of a step in their mission to like try and accomplish something. They want to get some information out of him, whatnot. You kind of expect the scene to be like you know um, something like a little more. Um, a, a little more uh mission focused and trying to like extract information which is kind of what it is but at the same time show up and they sit, she sits down across from her ex-husband who is played by none other than bradley cooper and on top of that it actually turns into like one of the most earnest scenes in the entire movie out of nowhere but like you're also laughing the whole time because it's like bradley cooper who is most times you see him these days as a serious actor is just like playing this uh playing this little person in this movie in in a high pitched voice and uh just like kind of like having this incredibly heartfelt conversation uh what was your reaction to seeing him uh in in this role in that scene in particular which like again i i was just i was kind of quite marveling at it because like i was like i couldn't stop laughing but at the same time i was like this is incredibly sweet yeah so i i unfortunately i did have
1: the surprise slightly ruined i knew Ah. that i'd seen i guess i read in passing somewhere that Bradley cooper was in the movie so Ah. i didn't i when when they set it up as like oh we're passing through this little town uh and Holga's like i'm gonna go see my ex-husband you kind of put two and two uh, together i was like oh okay i think i see where this is going see, I, I i had <laughs> seen somewhere online
0: but, someone mentioned that there was a big cameo so i guess but, i yeah but you so still i was got, like oh that's the big that cameo scene. but I, I knew nothing else yeah
1: yeah i unfortunately i'd seen bradley cooper's name okay. but that doesn't change the fact that it's still a fantastic cameo <laughs> just a joke in and of itself right this idea that you know uh holga a Probably, As a type, you know, six foot nine, but right? Well, yeah, that's the joke at the end of the movie. But yeah, mm-hmm. this this probably uh, over six foot tall. Well, they both you know, have a type when you see who his uh, current wife is. Right, his current <laughs> wife also being a huge barbarian woman. Um, but but you're right. No, the scene was incredibly emotional. And to to clarify. I think it's, I, I, me personally, I felt like it was one of the best scenes in the movie, mm-hmm. because again, I think it works on several levels as both something that you can read as being D&D, the tabletop game related, while also being a great, just a great scene in context. They, because the fact of the matter is, they're, they're not actually going to his house for any reason in fact the rest of the party at that point is trying to stop her from going oh right 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 they're, right they're yeah. like do you are she really sure you want to go back and like why like yes we have to pass through this village but you you don't need to go there you're correct
0: you're correct the reason it actually kind of caught me off guard was because because of the way they were setting it up and you think they're like setting like you're think that you're prepared for some kind of like really explosive like uh, scene where their their concerns with her going in there are validated. So it, it, that's why it took a surprising turn for me. I just forgot that, you know.
1: Sure. Right. And I think you can read it in a couple of different ways, right? Like you saw it that way. What I see it as, I see it as that, right? Them being like, come on, get over it. Like you don't need to go see him. It's just going to make you sad. But you can also read it as a joke of like the other players don't want to spend time on this. This is a, this is getting sidetracked on something uh, yeah. that's not important, <laughs>
0: Which I'm sure Um, happens a lot when you're playing.
1: It does. It does. But I think, again, it succeeds on so many levels because it shows an astuteness for turning something that is not plot relevant, directly plot relevant, into something meaningful. Mm -hmm. The best D&D moments oftentimes come from things like that, where players want to engage with something that's not on the rails that's not directly in their line of sight right whether it's going to going a little bit out of their way to visit a character's you know somebody from a character's past or you know helping the old lady take her groceries up to her house or you know just things like that where Mm. it's not fighting the world ending threat but it doesn't it's still able to be executed in a way that has meaning and i thought that that scene was an expert expert display of that kind of going off the rails and still having something be meaningful and in the context of the story the dm does end up like slipping something important in right because she gives the there is a reference to that she gave her husband this walking stick that she found and then when she goes to see him he's like, why don't you take all this stuff? Like, take this, take this, take the walking stick you gave me. I don't really need it anymore. And then the walking stick ends up being an important magical item. Mm-hmm. So, it, it it adds layers to it, right? Like, the scene was great in and of itself, and then it found a way to be plot relevant anyways. Like, yeah, it felt very accurate to the game, while also, I mean, even you noted, I'm not saying even you, I, I agree, I but like, you noted as a non-player that it was still a great scene.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. and, I, and i and aside from that, I'll just add that like I I appreciate Bradley Cooper being willing to do something like that in a way that like you know I well I mean I do think like you know a lot of people might do you know, this like a lot of the other main actors like they it's a big part like and they 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 get they see this script and it's like all right I'm gonna be a, like I think there's enough to this character at the end of the day that like I'm gonna you know. I'm going to come out of this okay because these are good filmmakers. I read a good script, but it's like, I think there's almost more of a risk in like taking like a small part like that. That, like, you don't know how people are going to react to like just a guy like him playing like a little small person like that. They might, like, they might, you know, like turn their nose up at it. And this thing gets like gratuitous or something like that in a way. And, like, I think, you know, I, for one, like, I just, I don't know. I feel like Bradley Cooper since a Star is War in a movie which I loved, like just doesn't seem like as like, you know, it, it doesn't seem like as regular of a guy whenever I see him give interviews. it just seems a little odd, but like, you know, more power to him if he can still like play like give great performances, like he does in um uh, like he does in uh in uh nightmare alley or licorice Pizza, like in spite of that, even though I, I think his persona off screen is kind of weird and he seems he probably takes himself pretty seriously, and good for him, he's a serious filmmaker. I'm sure you know, he put a lot of thought into in maestro, but like when someone that like that, like that that just comes across to me is like so serious with their Craft is like willing to do something so silly. Like, I really respect that, you know. So uh
1: I, I will I I will point out this is the second film in the Bradley Cooper ex-husband cameo cinematic universe, the first being Ten Cloverfield Lane, where he cameos as the voice of uh Mary Winstead's uh ex-husband on the phone at the beginning of the movie. Oh, I
0: think I did know that at the time, and I just had not thought about that, and like you know seven years or whatever right however long it's been yeah
1: god i love that movie though and yes just a fun random little another bradley cooper cameo i think he's i respect that element that he just kind of like if Mm -hmm. there's if there's something interesting for him to do he's kind of game like
0: yeah, it, uh, he's a, a little bit like Matt Damon in that regard. Matt Damon will pop up and stuff too if he just like wants to go have a fun time, you know. Yeah. Um, so more, I I just really appreciate him like being willing to do that and seeing that there is value in this in this particular very bizarre. Uh, but very charming scene. Uh Elijah, the last thing I had on my list to kind of ask you about uh was to I want I wanted to take a little trip over to CGI Corner because you're our you're our effects guy above all else. You know, I'm curious because we talked, we obviously like, you know, uh, use your expertise for that when we talk about Avatar, a movie which is you know, uh probably had, you know, uh several times the budget of this movie and uh is you know known for and James Cameron's known for like groundbreaking special effects in that time. Even since that came out, though, and we talked about it at the time, we talked about it a little bit last year with a couple of the other movies we talked about too. I would just say that like you know I I would say that like even since we talked about Avatar there's been like another another wave about stories about you know just VFX in the industry to to the extent that like you know I, I don't think people were necessarily super high on um shoot what was the last marvel movie that came out oh ant-man and the wasp and like some some of what we saw there Optimania, visually yeah. and then like you know marvel's head of production just had to uh, dip out for uh some reasons unrelated to that but also like i think people like there's just been bad press about around cgi and those movies like you know i mean they have like really really big budgets to the point where like 150 million for dungeon and dragons as a budget like honestly seems like you know uh fairly tame uh, so I'm curious you know with like a like like a comparatively smaller budget to some of the bigger tentpole movies we see out there uh, how did you feel this movie just did visually because we haven't really talked about that we talked about some of the creatures that we've seen and some of the scenes that we d- did see but like overall how do you think they they achieved in just like creating this world visually and were there any moments where you thought like oh they really kind of missed the mark there because I might not have the same discerning eye that you did but there's never a point in this movie where I was like oh that looks too goofy but that also might be because I have no like point of reference or what anything is supposed to look like here so I just kind of like was able to take it as a it was presented to me
1: yeah i mean look as far as the cgi goes i think we're at a point where there's just a certain standard to be expected and Mm -hmm. i think this movie hits that standard pretty well Mm -hmm. i don't think it necessarily as far as specifically as far as cgi is concerned i don't Mm -hmm. think it really you know blew the wheels off anything which is fine it did a lot of stuff very very competently Mm -hmm. where i think this movie's strength is is the practical effects okay which there's a ton of and they're so well done that i think some of them were shot like people were shocked to discover that they were practical effects
0: i've I've not read about this so what are some of the better ones that came to mind come to mind for you as far as those sequences
1: all uh every every member of a beast race presented in the film was practical so okay uh jarnathan my favorite character (laughs) uh practical that's a that's a full costume i think i did
0: I, i did hear that yeah yeah
1: I think there were some, you know, like CG, like element replacement where they had to like get rid of like joints and wings or whatever. But the costume itself is real. Okay. Uh, Jonathan was real. The tabaxi, the cat people that we mm. see in the introduction to um, to Jean-Page's character, also uh, cool. practical effects. The, the, the corpses mm. in the graveyard scene were, were all practical. Wow, really? Those, those were all practical elements um yeah and they're just i think they're just exceptionally well done there's a when you do things practically what you're imparting is a timelessness mm. it it both in a way connects the movie to i think what some of what this movie wants to be like and i think succeeds at which is kind of being like willow or legend or you know even the princess bride like like mm-hmm. You know the sort of the the traditional '80s fantasy can you know uh, dark uh dark crystal labyrinth uh you know the kind of the traditional '80s fantasy canon. It both connects your film to those in a tangible way, while also giving a quality to the film that's not going to age particularly poorly. Hmm. The practical effects done really well will almost always look better than CG where where it's possible. You know cuz you don't have to worry about the polygon count of an actual doll going, you know, mm-hmm. being obsolete in sure. a certain amount of time.
0: What about that uh, big what about that big jello cube? Was there anything practical about that? That the... was
1: not that was that was <laughs> that was a visual effect. Um, <laughs> I thought
0: it was a pretty good one, you know.
1: <laughs> they, no, it's fun. The gelatinous cube was done really well. <laughs> Obviously, you know, monsters like the displacer beast which was the the um Yeah, the the kind of panther with weird projecting tentacles mm-hmm. um that was obviously not a a practical element sure um neither was the chungus dragon themberjod um uh, that was not a practical element either what, what, what about
0: most of what uh, dork turned into i'm guessing those that was those uh, were
1: yeah again not practical elements yeah yes yeah.
0: so, but a i think i think i think they they worked well because again i'm not like they're not like this is a lion or whatever like they're making their own creation so i don't really have anything to compare it against and as long as it doesn't look totally like goofy or like you know like just completely so uh, transparently cg then like i think they did well enough you know and so. i
1: i would say something that i actually liked about the way that doric's animations were done mm-hmm. in her transformed state was that i mean in terms of druids in the way they transform there's no bit of lore that says that once a druid turns into another creature in wild shape that they know how to move mm-hmm. as that creature There is an implied, like, yes, you can move, you can use this creature's movement speed, but that doesn't mean that it's not going to look a little goofy while you, you know, kind of familiarize yourself with the body that you're in. So I like that through Doric's transformations, there is a little bit of kind of sloppiness to the movement because it's not a deer running. It's a woman who has transformed into a deer running. Hmm. So I, I thought that was really well done. But yeah, I mean I I would say to me the star was Legacy effects who did the, the the practical effects for the film. The same people that did a uh, baby Yoda that did grogu from oh, okay. the Mandalorian. they uh, they're behind the practical effects for uh, this movie. and I, yeah. I I thought they just did a, a stellar job and I think the choice to utilize practical effects in the way that they did was smart was just really smart.
0: Well, I'm glad I asked you about that because I, I didn't know. I, I really just, ha- I, I just hadn't read enough of the coverage to realize that that was how they uh, put together so much of the look of this movie. Uh, Elijah, anything else about Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves we didn't talk about yet that you want to touch on before you wrapped up?
1: Anything else? I mean, oh, look, I could probably talk about this movie for a very long time. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, I would say, you know, something that I'll relate that was in my review mm-hmm. um, is that I just... I definitely feel a sense of like envy in a way, uh, because this is a movie I wish I grew up with.
0: You know, we, you're gonna say you wish it was a movie that you had gotten to make.
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's right, it is a movie I wish I got to make, but you know, I think from a thematic, like from a stepping back for a moment and looking at the thematic context of the movie and the way that that plays out in the movie, I, I would say we, our generation, you know, millennials. We're kind of robbed of movies like this, you know, for, I would say for better or for worse, but a lot of the time in retrospect now for worse, uh, 9-11 had a really big impact on media. And from a metatextual standpoint, the way that that manifested was kind of an overall sense of cynicism. You know, a lot of, a lot of movies, that came out after nine eleven that weren't already in production, like Lord, you know, Lord of the Rings, uh, Return of the King, came obviously came out after nine eleven, but was clearly not was clearly not a product of the post nine eleven world. If you think about a lot of the fantasy that did come out afterwards, especially in the West, especially in America, is deeply, deeply cynical um, and deeply rooted in political realism, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But I say, if I can speak for a generation, I think we're pretty burnt out on that. I think everybody's kind of tired to some degree of the Game of Thrones perspective on fantasy, which is, you know, I think uh, I think um, I think uh, Lindsay Ellis put it very well on uh, in a YouTube video she did about Game of Thrones, which is that, you know, people I think when Game of Thrones came out, there was this this vitalism to it of like it's not your dad's fantasy this is hot fantasy that fucks like this is you know this is this is cool fantasy not that nerdy bullshit <laughs> and what that came with is like a heavy dose of this sneering cynical uh, cynicism at, at every turn in the humor in the messaging of the film uh, you know films and television and so all of this is to say i think that to me what I would hope for this movie above anything else that regardless of anything context with d d for those of you not watching, I'm literally wearing a DD and d shirt right now. So clearly I'm biased. But my point being, I don't even really care about this movie as a DD movie, because to me, it is just a fantastic fantasy film that feels like something pre 9-11. That feels like something that has the sincerity and the hopefulness of a time where not everything needed to be steeped in this sense of snide cynical uh you know depression Mm -hmm. um and uh i i think this movie does a great job approaching serious themes in a way that is not like that in a way that feels fresh and really enjoyable it was a movie where you can laugh you can do a little crying you know you can you can be happy you can be cheerful and there's everything in between and um that for me was maybe the biggest accomplishment of the film the indie stuff aside
0: well said last thing i'll add is i because we talked a little bit about Durek, but i didn't really mention sophia willis's name too much i i quite enjoyed seeing her i just hadn't seen her in a while you know she's uh prominently featured in the two it movies and is uh and it was in sharp objects and aside from that is like done some other stuff that didn't really get a whole lot of traction a canceled series here a movie that didn't do a ton there and i i like i i didn't click it was her till after I, i i didn't make the connection it was her till after i saw the movie i was like oh i'm enjoying this performer i was like oh she just looked older because i hadn't seen her in a few years but like I, I enjoyed what she was doing so I think she's a talented actress and I, i'm glad that she uh found this role and it and I think it, i think it's just a it's pretty entertaining and gets to do some cool stuff so i just want to say happy for her but i I said everything else i needed to say on this movie and very clear that both elijah and I uh really both enjoyed it coming at it from entirely different perspectives so i doubt anyone listened to this point if they haven't already seen it but you know i think you know I think everyone should definitely like you know it didn't do so super hot at the box office so i i, I would just ask that anyone that's still listening go try and get a friend to see it if they might have written it off because they're just not a dnd person and yeah you know i, I wouldn't say I, you know some people might and i think some people might just like like elijah and mentioned earlier might think of it as like oh, it's just a nerd thing and i didn't i i, I never necessarily thought about that I thought about it that way like i was a self-identified nerd in high school it was just never something that really came into my purview so i think some people might not even derisively think of it as a nerd thing they just might think of it as something that's just very foreign to them and maybe not worth their time because they don't know about it so i would just say you know like encourage those people that might like this kind of stuff that just don't know about this source material to give it a shot you you know they they probably they, I think they probably really enjoy it because uh, I did uh, Elijah before we get out of here any anything else you've been watching recently that you want to recommend to the listeners?
1: Um, not a recent watch, but an mm. every year watch that I mm. I want to bring up is because it's topical here. Yes, um, I've already mentioned you know the '80s fantasy canon. Um, you know those movies are pretty well known. I think in terms of sort of their reputation as being like classic fantasy films that everybody who grew up in this time period has maybe seen, or at least is aware of Um, a movie that I don't think gets enough appreciation um, because it came out, unfortunately, basically right before nine 11 and was kind of my, it is a film that very much is against the grain of what would come later is uh, a night's tale. Mm. The 2000, I actually don't think I've seen that. It's a 2001, um, It's not a fantasy film. It's just a medieval uh, adventure film um, directed by Brian Helgeland Uh, is the guy who uh, I think he directed 42, the the Jackie Robinson film with Chadwick Boseman. But he's Mm. he's more prominent as a screenwriter where he's uh, written tons and tons of things dating back to the 90s. Uh, he, ro- uh, he wrote L.A. Confidential, which won him an Academy Award. But uh, A Night's Tale is one of his directorial efforts, one of his few directorial efforts, and it is honestly one of my favorite films. Mm. Uh, it got a very bad rap at the time when it was released because it was silly and sincere and had modern rock music in it despite being set in the Middle Ages. And I think now hopefully people can go back and start to appreciate what that movie was trying to do because there's a lot of its DNA in Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves. And so I'm, I'm very happy to recommend that to anybody. I think it's one of, it's like the perfect date movie Hmm. because it's got something for everyone. It's got a little action. It's got a little romance. It's got a little comedy. It's got a little drama. It's got a great Heath Ledger performance from early on in his career. Got a great heel turn from Rufus Sewell. A whole cast of other people who you will certainly recognize um, when you see them. And it's uh, available on Netflix right now, I believe, as well as on uh, AMC Plus, anywhere that you can get that.
0: There you go. It's an easy enough watch then. I don't have a ton to recommend myself. You know, by the time people listen to this, it, you know, the final season of succession will be about halfway through. Uh, but, you know, never too late to catch up on that. It's still great. You know, somehow Elijah's never watched it, even though he was a Turner man in a previously, previous life. So maybe someday he'll do that and maybe someday he'll correct that. Um, But yeah, I just haven't watched a ton of other movies recently, but you know, I don't know. As usual, you can find me on Letterboxd and Twitter at Josh Shredavoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y. Elijah is on Letterboxd as uh, Mr. Smith goes to the numeral F-L, right? uh yes, and uh and yeah uh coming up next on the podcast we're gonna have an episode on air and in a couple of weeks elijah will be back to talk about Bo is afraid the new Ari Aster movie which you know every time if, if you see any of the coverage of it it just sounds even wackier every time uh, any new piece of information comes out so i think we're both very excited to talk about that i want to thank elijah for joining me tonight to lend his uh dungeons and dragons expertise i had a great time with this one i want to thank everyone for listening and we'll see you next time